Hello, everyone, and thank you so much for listening to True Time. Today's case, we will be covering the murder of Angela Simoda, and it has such a unique ending, probably one of the most interesting endings we've ever covered here on True Time, so stay tuned to listen to the end. Hello, everyone. (laughs) I was going to say happy November. (laughs) Happy November. I can't believe it's already almost Christmas time. Yeah, well, Thanksgiving first. I know, but I'm excited. I'm too. Yeah, Christmas is the best time of the year. Yeah, we actually live in Germany, so I'm super excited to start going to Christmas markets in the next couple weeks. Yeah, I think you should tell people about that because... No one would know before I moved here. I never even heard of those. Yeah, so one of Germany's biggest Christmas traditions is they have Christmas markets. And basically, they sell the yummiest treats, like German Christmas treats, and yummy, warm, cozy drinks, and really unique gifts, like paper lantern stars, and cozy mittens, and hats, and ornaments and the vibe is beautiful the christmas lights and what's the drink that everyone drinks it's a glue vine glue vine kind of like a warm red wine but it's citrusy yeah it's really it's it tastes like a warm juice it's so good really good (laughs) but it's it's such a good way to get into the spirit and even though we still are super excited for thanksgiving it's definitely something fun to look forward to here it is it is But yeah, so super excited to be taking on a whole nother month. That means we've officially been doing the podcast for a whole month. Mm -hmm. And wow. Yeah. We are so excited. We can't believe we have, at this time that we're recording, we have a little over 800 downloads. Yeah. Yeah. You guys are awesome. We absolutely love you guys. You are officially my favorite people ever. So thank you so, so much. And please, I really want to talk to you guys and learn about where you're listening from and what you like. So please, we have our direct message boxes open on our Instagram and Facebook and TikTok, all at True Time Podcast. So come talk to me because... I mean, even your personal, you made open now. Yeah, yeah. I'm now public as well. And my Instagram username is Avery E. Hamill. So... Come talk to me, and I want to get to know you guys, because this has been so fun. Yeah, it's pretty exciting. It is really exciting. But yeah, so on that note, let's do what we're all here to do and (laughs) talk about today's case. For sure. So today's case is the murder of Angela Simoda, and something that's very important to me, I do want to let everyone know before we get into it, that this case does have a content warning because it does contain sexual assault. So throughout the story, I will do my best to give any warnings before I share any deep details or talk about the crime scene, but I just wanted to let everyone know that this story is pretty heavy, and I absolutely want this to be a safe place for all of our listeners. Sounds good. So with that, we'll get into it. So Angela Simoda 
was 20 years old, and she was a junior at Southern Methodist University in Dallas, Texas. Angela, known as Angie by her friends, studied computer science and electrical engineering, where she was one of a few girls in the whole department, and while she was also a member of the sorority Zeta Tau Alpha. Nice. So she was also the youngest out of five siblings, and she was originally from Abilene, Texas. And her best friend, Sheila Wysocki, said in an interview with BBC that, quote, Angie had a beautiful smile, the biggest I've ever seen, the type of smile that would light up her whole face, end quote. And her best friend, Sheila and Angie, had met in 1982 on their first day at Southern Methodist University. They were roommates, and Sheila said that they didn't actually get along that well until after the first semester, since Angie had a boyfriend she didn't like very much. That's actually how I've met all my best friends, though. You never, I don't know, I've never liked my friends until some hatred has passed. That's one of my mom's best friend's story, too. Yeah. That's kind of funny. I haven't really had that. I don't know. I feel like I've liked all my friends from the beginning. Or at least my best friend. Yeah. Yeah. Complete hate story. Shout out to our best friends because this case really symbolizes how important best friends are. Okay. Yeah, let's see. So, however, once Angie and that boyfriend had broken up, her and Sheila became super close and obviously soon best friends. So this case begins on the night of October 11th or the night of October 12th. There's a lot of contradicting information out there. So it's either the story begins on the 11th or 12th of 1984, which so happens the 12th, October 12th to be your birthday. That is my birthday. (laughs) So that's when the story begins. Okay. Angie had invited Russell Buchanan, who was 23 at the time, to come with her and another friend named Anita Kadala to the Texas State Fair for the evening. And according to thecriminaljournal.com, Angie had met Russell at a restaurant on McKinney Avenue. He was an architect, and according to Sheila's interview with BBC, Angie was great at networking and thought he would be a good connection to have in her career. She had also invited her boyfriend named Ben McCall. However, according to thecinemaholic.com, he couldn't join since he worked in construction and had an early job the next morning. So after they went to the fair, Angie, Russell, and Anita went to a club named the Rio Room. They danced and drank, and Russell said that Angie went from table to table talking and, quote, seemed to know everyone, end quote, according to vintage cold cases. They left some time between midnight and 1 a.m., and Angie drove them home. TheCriminalJournal.com said that a Rio Room employee named David Skelton stated that Angie did not appear to be intoxicated when they left. Angie first dropped off Russell. And Anita was going to spend the night with Angie, but she had plans to go to a super early football game the next morning. So Anita just decided to be dropped off at her dorm, according to thecriminaljournal.com. Mm-hmm. So before heading back to her apartment, Angie actually stopped at her boyfriend's home to say goodnight. 
so sweet. That was the one that they were out with, right? Angie was out with Russell and Anita, but her okay. boyfriend Ben couldn't come. Oh, he was the construction worker. Yeah, so okay. she just stopped by to say goodnight to him. Okay, since sorry. Since he couldn't visit with no, them. No, that makes sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So shortly after she got home, though, she called her boyfriend Ben at around 1.45 a.m. When he answered, she said, quote, talk to me, end quote, and sounded extremely nervous. She started to ramble a little before Ben heard a strange noise in the back and asked what it was. And according to thecriminaljournal.com, Angie told Ben she had let a man in to use the bathroom and the telephone. However, I also read a few sources that stated it wasn't clear if he was already in the apartment when she got back or if she had actually let him in. That seems strange. Yeah. It doesn't sound like a girl by herself at almost 2 a.m. would let in a man. So the information is contradicting. However, this man was somehow in her apartment. Yeah, that's weird. Yeah. So she then asked her boyfriend if there was a payphone at the closest convenience store. And he told her yes. So she told the man this information. And the last thing she told Ben was that she'd call him back soon and hung up. Oh, no. As time passed and she never called back, Ben became worried and drove over to her place. He actually had an early generation handheld phone with him for work, so he tried calling her multiple times on the way over, but she never answered. Once he got to her apartment, he tried knocking on the door, but no one came, and when he tried to open the door, it was locked. He even did a quick drive-by of the convenience store that they had talked about earlier, but she wasn't there either. He went back to the apartment and immediately called 911. Smart. Yeah. At around 2.15 a.m., the morning of October 12th, possibly the 13th, police finally arrived and had to kick the door in to gain entry. As they entered, they began looking around. They noticed her shoes in the kitchen but it didn't take long for them to find Angie in her bedroom. So here's another content warning for what I'm about to say. So if you need to click off or fast forward, now's the time. Angie was found dead on her bed, naked, covered in blood, stretched across her bed with her legs hanging off and her eyes wide open. Mm. Her autopsy report stated that she had been stabbed 18 times in her chest and 10 of the stabs went through her heart and lungs, according to thecriminaljournal.com. What's with all these stories? Like, these women are stabbed, like, an absurd amount of times. It's so violent. It's such yeah, a violent it's, death. It's never been, like, just stabbed once or twice. No. It's, it's, vi- like it's extreme just extreme aggression. Pure rage and anger and violence. It's all it comes down to, psychologically. Yeah. It was also confirmed, again, another warning in case you're still listening, that at the scene, she had been raped right before she was murdered. An obstetrician-gynecologist named Dr. Claudia Werner said, quote, there was a lack of bruising and trauma found on Samoda's body as being consistent with that of women who submitted to a sexual assault under threat of force, end quote. So she couldn't even really fight back. She just gave in, which is so upsetting. Yeah. A rape kit was performed and blood samples were taken from Angela's body. 
The results were able to determine what type of blood type the murderer was. However, unfortunately, in 1984, the technology to perform DNA testing wasn't available yet. Yeah, I mean, that's what we've seen before. Yeah. Is that they get the DNA samples and can test people, but they don't have a database to compare it to. Yep, exactly. So they just have to go test random people. Mm-hmm. That takes forever. Mm-hmm. And in this case specifically, all the police had to go off of was just blood type. Oh, okay. So that's mm-hmm. even harder. Yeah, they couldn't even test the DNA. It was just so early. Damn. Okay. Yeah. So from the beginning of the investigation, police had three suspects. There was her boyfriend at the time, Ben, an ex from her hometown, who she'd actually had a pretty rocky past with. And according to vintage cold cases, her ex had gotten so angry with her one time that he cut up her clothes and threatened her with a knife. Oh, my God. Yeah. And the final suspect was Russell Buchanan, her male friend that she had gone out with earlier that evening. Mm -hmm. Once the police confirmed the blood type, this eliminated her current boyfriend and her ex-boyfriend from being suspects since their blood types were not a match to the killers. Okay. However, Russell's was a match. Mm. Police went after Russell hard. According to the criminaljournal.com, he was kept under 24-hour surveillance, so police followed him and watched his every move, and he had to come in for questioning constantly. In his testimony, he told police he had gone straight to bed once Angela had dropped him off at his home, but this wasn't what the cops wanted to hear. Mm -hmm. They pushed for a confession, and some of the questionings Russell went through were intense. So, just another little warning. This next quote will contain terms used in regards to assault. Russell recalled that one of the officers questioning him held up the graphic image of Angela's body from that night and said, quote, She dropped you off. You were mad because you wanted to have sex with her. You went down to her apartment. She let you in. You had sex with her. She started to scream. You stabbed her, and you stabbed her. And stabbed her and stabbed her 18 times. End quote. Very so, heavy and brutal. So, but then she called her boyfriend because she said it was like a random guy. She just said, said there was a man in the apartment. She never identified him or said that she knew him or said yeah. that she didn't know him. So, but despite all of that, they never got a confession from Russell. Okay. And it was also around this time that Sheila Waisaki, Angela's best friend, had gotten really involved down at the police department trying to help solve this case. She went to the station frequently where they asked her about Angie's routine, where did she grocery shop, and showed her various people asking if she recognized someone according to her interview with BBC. They even showed her the same graphic photo of the crime scene, which I just could not imagine being able to stomach looking at a picture like that. Yeah, that's horrible. The police made it very clear to Sheila that they believed Russell had committed the crime and Sheila had agreed that something about him felt off to her. The police encouraged her to try to talk to him to see if his story stayed straight and if he would confide any new information with her. It even went so far that Sheila had asked Russell to go out to dinner, which she recalled that her mom flipped out and she was nervous too since she felt like she was sitting next to her best friend's murderer talking about what happened that night. Yeah, I was about to say, like, the cops, I feel like shouldn't push 
a normal civilian to do something like that. Yeah. That seems very unsafe. She was just as determined herself to try to find answers for her best friend. Yeah, but it doesn't help if you also end up in the same situation. No, she was very brave. That's not to be grim, but that's... No, it's true. That could be scary. It's true. That could go bad. I agree. But despite that meeting, Sheila told the detectives that his story added up and it never changed. But police still made him come down to take a lie detector test, which he did pass... And the questioning just still continued, she stated in her BBC interview. So by this point, Russell was over being treated like a criminal, despite how many times he claimed he was innocent. So he hired a super famous attorney during the 80s in Texas named Richard Racehorse Haynes. And Sheila stated that anyone who hired him was definitely guilty. Why? why? Just because... I'm assuming he's a defense attorney who most criminals hired at the time is what it sounded like. Okay. What's with the racehorse thing? Sounds like a Texas thing to me. (laughs) (laughs) So, but despite everything, there was never any forensic evidence. So Russell Buchanan was never charged. Okay. Yeah. So eventually he ended up just leaving the country for grad school, trying to escape everything he'd been through, according to vintage cold cases. Mm. Sheila was also left pretty scarred. She stated, quote, Angie's murder was the most traumatic event of my life, and I don't know what I was supposed to do. I slept on the floor in my mom's room for quite a while. I had changed that day. My innocence was gone. I never went back to college, end quote. Oh, so she dropped out? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was too much for her. Yeah. I mean, that's understandable. I'm pretty sure they were roommates at the time, but she was actually at home when this happened, like okay. with her family or something like that, I believe. Yeah. So she got a phone call that this had happened. Oh, God. Yeah. So with no more solid suspects or evidence, the case went cold until a little over 20 years later. Holy. So what? That's like early 2000s yep damn yeah throughout that time sheila would still meet with the head detective on the case working to figure something out they grew close and sheila actually invited him to her wedding in 1988 Hmm. so that's how much time they spent together they would go to bars and dinner just trying to find a suspect if it could be anybody get russell to finally confess because they believed it was him still yeah okay however shortly after they lost touch and there were no leads so cold case Mm -hmm. so we fast forward to 2004 and sheila had actually moved to tennessee where she lived with her family and she was doing bible study homework one night when she remembered looking to her right and seeing a vision of angie she told bbc quote I don't know if I believe in ghosts, but I have a lot of faith, and I believe that there are messages. And at that moment, I thought, it's time. End quote. And right after she had this vision of her best friend sitting right next to her, she picked up her phone and called the Dallas Police Department. And she tried to get through a couple times, and she ended up just leaving a message for the detective she had worked closely with many years ago, but... He never responded to her. Okay. 
She said that she ended up calling over 700 times trying to get in touch with someone who would reopen the case or tell her anything about it. If that isn't one of the best, best friends, (laughs) I mean, 700 phone calls, trying, fighting. Yeah. To learn something. I don't think I've called that many people in my life. I know. That's, it's insane. It's so persistent. It's amazing what people will do for their family and their friends. Yeah. But throughout that time, she learned that in the past 20 years, not one person had called again about the case. Hmm. And she said to BBC, quote, how can someone die such a violent death and no one call and want to know why and want to know who? That still makes me cry, end quote. What about her family? They never called. I guess probably going through something that traumatic, you just try to work towards accepting and moving on. Not in a bad way, but yeah, no, just being at peace, I believe. So yeah. I think it was probably more of that situation. Yeah, okay. But they, throughout all those phone calls, they said to her, quote, some cases just aren't meant to be solved, end quote. yeah police (laughs) telling her this that makes no sense i know that's pretty upsetting (laughs) yeah that's i feel like that's the complete opposite of what you should ever say as a cop i agree they just aren't aren't meant to be that way sorry yeah i guess they just got so annoyed (laughs) that she kept calling that much but that's not really an excuse to me yeah that's insane i know so she stayed persistent though not giving up until someone would take another look into Angie's case. And Sheila even began doing her own research, finding similar crime reports that shared familiarities with Angie's murder in that area at that time. And the more phone calls she made, the no answers became extremely frustrating for her. And I can't blame her when all she wanted was some information and someone to just care a little enough to take a second look at the case. Yeah. One day, she was talking to the head of security at her gated community where she lived, telling him about her frustrations and all of the work she had done. When he told her that she would make a great private investigator, and she told BBC that she didn't even hesitate. (laughs) She knew what she had to do. She decided that night she was going to become a private investigator and solve her best friend's murder. That's awesome. I know. I couldn't even imagine, like, yeah. That's it. I'm tired of no. I'm getting in there. I'm going to look at the stuff and I'm going to get it done. Yeah. It's a boss move. I think that's a difference between a lot of people though, is that there's those people who are, who will actually do it and those who will wait for it to be done. Yeah. If you have cops like who are on that case, that just will never be done. Yeah. If she had never have come to this decision and pushed, this case would still be unsolved for sure. Yeah. No one would have ever looked at it again. It's almost 20 years later. Mm-hmm. There's no reason. Yeah. It's, and it's crazy. So she was living in Tennessee at the time, and she told BBC that in order to become a private investigator, you have to have a sponsor. And the security guards from her gated community were going to help her do it and train her. <laughs> no. So nice. it's pretty cool. She even had her son help quiz her on all the laws she needed to have memorized to pass the PI exam. Nice. 
and she passed and earned her license, making her an official private investigator. And after reading about that, it kind of sounds fun, kind of interesting. Oh, my. (laughs) I don't know. Podcast turned into private investigation. (laughs) Hey, it could happen. That sounds just as dangerous, though, (laughs) or as being a cop, I meant. Maybe. I don't know. You work for yourself. Yeah. I'm not sure, but it sounds interesting. Oh, no. But it took some time, but with all of her consistent phone calls, she believed that helped finally the Dallas Police Department open Angela's case again in 2006. The case was given to a female detective named Linda Crum, who finally listened to Sheila and worked with her. And while working together, Sheila learned some shocking news that would change the outcome of this case forever. Okay. The detective told Sheila that they still had the DNA evidence. She said in her interview with BBC, quote, I knew that they had done a rape kit on Angie, but I'd been told that the evidence had been lost in a flood. And now, how many years later, they have the evidence. Are you kidding me? I was floored. They had Angie's fingernails, so she obviously fought back, which is DNA. They had semen DNA, end quote. Yeah, so at the time, do they have more of a database that they can check these things? Yes. Through? Oh, my That's God. why that quote, when I first read it, and it still like gives me goosebumps, I couldn't imagine what it would feel like to learn that the answer you've been searching for for almost over 20 years exists. So all these cops just were too lazy. Yeah, they just never looked at it again. Oh, I hate people. And since DNA testing was still being developed and barely available in the mid-80s, it had since become extremely reliable and available in the early 2000s. Oh, my God. So they had to go through a process, but in 2008, the DNA samples were submitted for testing and the results came back in 2009. Oh, that's sort of a long time. Yeah, it was a little bit slower then. I mean, I think it's quicker now, but at least you could still find the answer. Mm -hmm. But yeah, yeah, Sheila said in a lot of her interviews, like this was not a quick process. It took lots of work. Yeah. And finally, the detective called Sheila and said, quote, we got him, end quote. (sighs) Sheila was expecting to hear Russell Buchanan's name, but she didn't. The killer was Donald Bess. And um, here's another kind of content warning for this man. He has done some nasty things. Donald Bess was first arrested in 1978 for aggravated rape and aggravated kidnapping, but in 1984 he was out on parole, which is unfortunately when he murdered Angie. In 2009, He was already serving life in prison for one count of aggravated rape, one count of aggravated kidnapping, and one count of sexual assault, according to Vintage Cold Cases. So three unrelated charges that had occurred in 1985. So he was already serving life. Serving life in prison, already locked up. (sighs) Why do they let these people out? I don't know. It's... Those people should never be let out, in my opinion. <laughs> but yeah, well, he was supposed to be. At least he's be, already put away. Like, so you aren't worried that that person was around. Yeah. Or like having to go to court 
and then well, they still have to go to, to court. Testify. Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But he's in life. He's in prison for he's life. He's still serving life for prison, but to get him convicted of Angela Simoto's murder, they still had to go to court. Okay. So it's is it more of like a personal reason at this point? Or no, it's just normal. Okay. I didn't It's a charge. Yeah. It's a conviction. He's found guilty. You have to follow through because okay. he was found guilty of this case. Or I just, of I just didn't know if there was a point. Since yeah, there's a point. Yeah. Okay. You kinda have to. It's like once you find out this information, you can't just be like, Oh, well he's already locked up. Like you need to get this on there. Like Okay. It's gotta yeah. follow through. Yeah. So in 2010, the trial for Angie's rape and murder was held, and Sheila was, of course, in attendance. And during the trial, multiple women and even his ex-wife testified about how he had sexually assaulted them. Oh, my God. Yeah. It took the jury less than an hour to find him guilty of the sexual assault and murder of Angela Simoda, and he was sentenced to death. Oh, yeah. This is Texas. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. Damn. All of his appeals since have been rejected, and he's about 72 now on death row and does not have an execution date set, though. Oh, so he's still alive. Yeah. I think from some of my research and just learning about true crime cases, once they get to be pretty old, they don't always set dates because... They might die. Yeah. So that was it. It took... Just that amount of effort and some time, and the answer was there. And, yeah, so just like that, almost 26 years later, Sheila had helped solve her best friend's case. That's pretty awesome. It's amazing. And she felt good about the work she'd put in, but she was she was ready to retire her license. And then all of a sudden, all kinds of people started reaching out to her to get help on cases that were similar to Angie's. So she's gone on to continue working as a private investigator in Texas and Tennessee. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. She even has her own podcast called, quote, Without Warning, end quote. Okay. And she talks about all the cases she's working on. That's cool. Yeah. So when you made that joke earlier about podcaster going Uh, PI, (laughs) she was PI gone podcaster. Nice. (laughs) Yeah. And her bio on withoutwarningpodcast.com states that she, quote, has worked on over 100 complicated cases, has been nominated as one of the top 20 best Nashville private investigators, and voted the number six most influential woman private investigator, end quote. That's awesome. So, yeah, she's done so much great work, and she is an inspiration. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Really happy. So cool. She was able, I mean, she went from... Seeing her best friend in that, what happened to her. Yeah. And then dropping out of college. I'm not sure what happened in between then, but I mean, mentally that has to be really rough. Yeah. And then to go on to have a family and stuff like that, and then just one day drop everything. Yeah. She was in like her early forties and she was oh, like, well. I'm just going to become a private investigator and yeah. figure this out myself. Yeah. Dude. I mean, that's sort of a completely restart of your life. Yeah. And found her new life calling. That's awesome. It's really cool. Nice. It's it's a lot, I think, just, you know, in terms of how grim this case is and how upsetting it was and for it to go cold, but to have such a unique ending where your best friend finally gets to bring you justice in a way. Yeah. It's it was really cool to read about. I bet I mean, I bet that helps her a lot too. Like 
Yeah, that peace that she had been fighting for because she continued for years after the murder to still try to find answers. Yeah. And also, as for Russell Buchanan, once Bess had been convicted, he said, quote, that's when I think I finally realized that it was done, that this chapter had finally been closed, end quote, according to the cinemaholic.com. I mean, he was basically harassed while being totally innocent. Yeah, that sucks for him. Yeah. Really hard on your whole life, your image, your career. Yeah. And it's hard for people because they want to find someone. Yeah. It's hard for him because it's unfair. It wasn't him. I know. Yeah. There's so many times where it is them and you're like, yeah, push. Like they deserve this, but it wasn't him. So it's hard to find that line. Yeah. And Russell and Angie had met up after everything was said and done and bonded over the experience and she asked for his forgiveness, which he, you know, totally let her know it was okay. And they actually visited Angie's grave together. And, you know, it took a really long time, but a lot of good did come from this case. Nice. Yeah. So if anything ever happens to me, best friends out there, know what you got to do. (laughs) No, this... This was probably the best ending case that we've had so far. Yeah, I know. It was really hard there for a second to get through, but it's really cool how, you know, family, friends, like what they would do for loved ones. So Yeah. Super inspirational, I thought, you know. For sure. Especially with it being November, a month of being thankful, you know. Yeah. Friends are definitely something I know we're both super thankful for. Yeah, 100%. But yeah, so... We're excited to kick off this next month. Be ready for new episodes every single Monday. Yeah, every Monday dropped. Yep. So please interact with us again. I really, really want to talk to you all. (laughs) I want to get to know you guys, and I totally respond. So. Yeah, I mean, Avery's favorite part or what she looked forward to is to make it more personal. Yeah. So her goal is to get interaction. Yeah. She really likes or enjoys that, and so. Yeah. Go follow at True Time Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, uh, TikTok, and then Avery E. Hamill on Instagram. <laughs> I know. it's. <laughs> we got married a month ago, basically. We got yeah. married on October 2nd, so we're still adjusting to my name change. I was yeah. formerly Avery Sims. So, <laughs> yeah. Fun fact for you. <laughs> but yeah, so happy November. New month, let's get at it and go thank your friends a little extra. (laughs) (laughs) All right, well, I hope everyone has a great day. Have a great week, everyone. Bye. Bye.